the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. To that end, I went last week to the UK in a Changing Europe event called Brexit Local and Devolved Government. And there is a report on their website with the same name that you can download and read all about what went on. While I was there, I grabbed a couple of the speakers for a chat. And this week's episode is the first of those. It features Bernard Jenkin. He gave a keynote address talking about Brexit and the Union as well as being a Tory MP and long-standing Eurosceptic. He is chair of Westminster's Select Committee on Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs, so the committee that considers all the implications of Brexit for how the UK is set up, because we don't really have a written constitution, of course. I took Bernard into a side room at the venue, and we were joined there by a podcast newbie, Alan Wager, of UK in a Changing Europe. We had a fun chat and Bernard made a series of strong statements. You can uh, count them up as we go along in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. But we started talking about how he went from Eurosceptic to full-blown Brexiteer. I didn't become a Brexiteer until after the 2015 election, and it became clear that there was going to be a referendum. Mm. Uh, at that point, I said to my wife, the next morning, um, I'm going to have to make up my mind now. Do we vote for the Lisbon Treaty and everything and accept the whole thing, or do we vote to leave? And it didn't take me very long to decide we had to vote to leave. So you were a Brexiteer before that, you just sort of didn't realise you were because there was no referendum, is that fair to say? Uh, suffice to say, I put off the decision uh, about <laughs> wanting to leave the European Union until we were confronted with that choice. I would have preferred David Cameron to have negotiated from within much more robustly and um, I, I think there are disadvantages arising from our complete disengagement from the European Union, albeit I think they're vastly outweighed by the advantages and the advantages mainly being democratic and constitutional. I think actually economically it's pretty neutral. So if there was to be a second referendum, <laughs> I'm not saying you would be in favour of that, and there was three options of which one was remaining on the terms we are, leaving on whatever deal we have down the road, and some sort of associate membership. Is there a possible, that third option of associate membership could meet no, your I think, I think we've requirements? No, uh, we've crossed the Rubicon now. I don't think you'll ever put the genie back in the bottle. Um, and um, the, 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 the deal that Theresa May um, hopes to deliver, and in fact, despite the rather acidic tone of the the Tusk statement and the guidelines published again this week, um, they have conceded we will have a free trade agreement, uh, we will, um, and uh, I think there is the basis for an agreement uh, on, on the terms that Theresa May is seeking. It's going to be grudging, they'll, get, they'll only give way at the last minute, but I think that will be the most advantageous for us now. I think trying to explain to the British people but no, 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 we've changed our minds again. We think you ought to go back in and into some form of arrangement. I don't think I'll buy that. 
And I think we'd be, we're required to give so many concessions, I don't think it'll work. Um, so do you think... And the last thing most people want is another blinking referendum. <laughs> <laughs> referendum. Don't talk to me about a referendum. I used to cover Scottish politics. Do you, you, you mentioned the deal that we may or may not get. Do you think the government is pursuing that deal in a competent fashion? Yes. Better um, than competent? Uh, I think Theresa May is showing extraordinary patience and consistency, uh, extraordinary self-restraint. Uh, she's not adopted the, um, the, the Thatcher haranguing style of negotiation. Um, I think she feels very strongly that a lot of things are better left unsaid because they're divisive at home and they're antagonistic in Brussels. Um, uh, she is winning a great deal of perhaps grudging respect um, from uh, her adversaries in, in Brussels, um, but they will find her a very, very hard nut to crack if they think they can wear her down. And so far, actually, if you track it, it's the European Union that's been retreating from its position. I mean, it still adopts this rhetoric about cherry-picking and mm -hmm. you know, all this sort of stuff. But actually, to concede that, yeah, we can have a, a, a seat-type deal is a very big step forward. Would you agree, Alan, that well, Theresa May is a, a tactical genius in this? Or, the, or maybe that, that's I'm well, too flimsy there, I think, but you, you but get my point. It's very near to this party. When you're in the House of Commons, you sit, oh, it's, it's, it's quite near these Brexit mutineers on the benches, and they've got quite vociferous during kind of debates. Yeah, hang on, the Brexit mutineers these days, we're talking about Anna Subri and... Uh, Maybe one other also. Nicky Morgan and these sort of things. <laughs> yeah. But there was a time when Bernard was a Brexit mutineer. Well, this, is a, this is the weird thing. Do you have some sort of respect for their for their for the strength of their view, given that you were a master rebel? Do you think I have a great deal of respect and indeed a great deal of sympathy because mm. this is like um, a kind of religious dispute, uh, a dispute <laughs> about doctrine, and there are competing narratives that are completely irreconcilable and. It is very painful when you're losing, and as a Eurosceptic, a lot of <laughs> the last 25 years has been many years when one felt one was losing. Um, so I know what that's like. Um, I do think that um, there is a difference now, however. Uh, when I was rebelling against the Maastricht Treaty, it was partly because John Major was refusing to have a free vote or refusing to have a referendum. Mm. Um, there has been not only a vote to have a referendum, there has been a vote, there has been the referendum, mm. and then there was a vote in which most of these people voted for Article 50, mm -hmm. um, and now they're rebelling against the consequences of those votes. Um, I, I find that quite difficult. I, th I think in the end, 450 constituencies voted leave. Mm. I think even the Remainers in the House of Commons will find that irresistible, and the House of Lords. So you think come October, you are going to be predicting, and you're a betting man, you wouldn't predict that there's the, enough, there's the dozen needed uh, within the Conservative Party, that that could be some sort of crunch parliamentary moment. You don't foresee that being an issue when we get this meaningful vote at the end of the year. Well, if, the, you're a, if you're a betting man. The odds, the odds are against you. I think things are tougher if there's no deal. Um, but I think even then, if, if there's no deal, it will be so self-evident that the European Union is intent on self-harm um, and the, 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 the price in terms of jobs, jobs, loft, jobs 
lost by attritional trade um, will be worse in the, on the continent, possibly worse in Germany, <laughs> with whom we have a huge trade deficit. You're assuming they're going to act in economic rational self-interest. Well, you know, well, that's, that's that would be a chain in your view, wouldn't it? I mean, um, I think uh, the member states will want to act rationally. At least some of the member states. Um, maybe the institutions can't. I mean, the the, the negotiations are being driven from Brussels as though it was some kind of legal project, yeah. rather than um, um, a political trade-off to be made. And the, the terms which they use in all their documents, you know, they're drafting all these documents as, as legal texts and they're standing on issues of principle all the time. Well, actually, that's not where the real world works. And of course, it's one of the reasons we're, we're not very, we were never very well adapted to the European Union. We Brits, you know, we sort things out with quite a lot of fudge. Um, and um, uh, there's a kind of mindset in the European Union that hates fudge. Well, that's a good thing, though, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, I, don't, I get your point that fudge is terribly, uh, essentially British, but it's not really a good way. I mean, when I try and fix anything in my house, I fudge it and bodge it, and then it falls apart fairly soon afterwards, and I have to pay somebody to come in and fix it. Um, <laughs> is that not a good thing, to be anti-fudge? And what about your personal relationships? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose they are. Yeah, all personal relationships are fudge, aren't they, to some extent? I don't know. Um, I, I, I think the great mistake the European Union would make if they don't do a deal... Uh, I would forecast there will be a very strong backlash from the British people if the European Union is seen to be cussed or doctrinaire right to the end, so there isn't a deal. I don't think they will blame Theresa May for that. How could anybody blame Theresa May? She's been so compromising and emollient. Is that what it sort of comes down to? I don't want to be simplistic, but I'm going to be, obviously. Um, that somehow it's a, there's a cultural difference between them and us? The well, in the end... The reason we're, we don't want to be absorbed into a single constitutional construct with the rest of the European Union is we are a separate country with um, um, a different culture and a different political culture and a different way of doing things. And that is particularly represented in our legal system and our system of common law, which is so at odds with the rest of the continent. Right, that leads me on to my next question, because this is a genuine headache. Okay, We're here at an event about devolution and the regions and all that sort of stuff. You could find, I could walk upstairs and find a Scottish journalist, find a couple of Scottish journalists, who would sit and say to you, Scotland is a separate country with a separate tradition, with a separate legal system, so therefore the same arguments about Britain leaving the EU apply to Scotland leaving the UK. That's absolutely fine if, if, if Scotland had voted to leave the United Kingdom in a referendum, <laughs> but they didn't. Uh, Scotland is, was part of a unitary state for 350 years and uh, even though it now has a Scottish Parliament and a very strong nationalist contingent in that Parliament and a nationalist government, uh, they couldn't persuade the British people to break its ties with the rest of the United Kingdom. I think that says a lot about the strength of the Union. Have you been surprised at the kind of resilience of the Union and the fact that the support for Scottish independence hasn't gone up at all and actually has gone down. Has you been pleasantly surprised by that up since the since the EU vote? Um, it's not become I, an issue. I, 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 I never thought, I, I, I wrote before the referendum on several occasions uh, that, the, that the 2014 Scottish referendum was the high point of nationalism and there was no appetite for another Scottish referendum. And I think the biggest mistake Nicola Sturgeon made was threatening another referendum. 
because I don't think the Scottish and why we've got 30 more seats in Scotland now is that because the Scots were not taken with the idea of having another independence referendum and they were very keen uh, there's quite a strong I mean the, the majority of Scots voted remain but we got um, elected in areas that tended to vote leave yeah I mean you mentioned that uh, in your address to today's conference uh, the idea of a power grab which as you point out is grabbing powers that have never been in Edinburgh in the first place and yet the idea of a power grab has very much caught on um, well, um, so why I have that? a word with those Scottish journalists upstairs. <laughs> and Welsh and Northern Ireland, I suspect. Uh, they, would, they would join in as um, well, right? I mean, the, the media has always been, um, including the BBC, I have to say, has always had a ready appetite for the nationalist uh, narrative. Um, uh, <laughs> well, but, hang on. And, um, I will have to. As somebody who's got to cover the Scottish independence referendum, I think there's uh, um, people on the other side who would say that uh, the BBC are inclined the other way. Uh, well, maybe, but the, but the um, but it, but it's news. The nationalist mm, narrative sure. is news, and it's divisive, and that's what the media likes. Um, mm. um, I'm not ascribing any particular view to the BBC. Um, Alan, from a UK point, UK to change Europe point of view, um, we're obviously at an event talking about devolution and the regions and all that sort of stuff. Do you think enough was discussed about this? pre-referendum or in the in the, the referendum campaign and enough has actually been researched and thought about it post-referendum? Uh, well certainly there was some people talking about it pre-referendum. Uh, Tony Blair and John Major went to Belfast to talk about but they principally were often we were talking about Scotland. They, mm. were saying, they were saying that there was a risk to the Scottish uh, devolution settlement if we left the European Union. And I think afterwards well, thus, thus far afterwards, I think there has been, and obviously the main key issue has been has been the issue of, of, of Northern Ireland, but I, I would say thus far, since the referendum, there hasn't really been much discussion of it, and it looks like, well, it was, it was since the since the, the, the court case that, that basically said that the Scottish Parliament can't override. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's been and, and tied with the fact that Scottish independence in the polling hasn't gone up means that it's not been a live issue thus far. It could become a live issue in the next six months. But but the reason why the referendum for the nationalists was lost is fundamentally because uh, they underestimated how strong the cultural ties are between Scotland and England, however different the the cultures. And and I'm substantially Scottish myself, but I count myself as English in this debate. Um, uh, But also, the financial dependency of Scotland on the rest of the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people in Scotland were very wary of casting themselves into a financial wilderness if they voted to... Now, if Scotland suddenly became a, a massive exporting nation with a big surplus and generating lots of tax revenues, that might change. Well, of course, Scotland does export one thing, um, which we will no doubt be discussing some Scotland. Well, Scotland, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And whiskey. It's one of my current bugbears is all this talk about how uh, the Cornish pasties are going to get sold in America. Nobody sells Cornish pasties in America. We sell tons more Scotch whiskey than we do Cornish pasties. And yet, there are certain lobby journalists who used to work for the Western Morning News and make Cornish pasties a far bigger issue than it ought to be. Um, I was just going to ask you, sort of, finally... That's the effect of the BBC, by the way. Well, I know. The Cornish pasty loving BBC. I would, there are others I would hold to, hold to account for their Cornish pastyism, Cornish pasty centric view of the world. Um, 
just finally on that sort of union uh, element, um, I asked how you became a, a Brexiteer, how you became a Eurosceptic. How did you become a, a unionist, if you like? And, you know, I was surprised to learn that you did stand in Glasgow Central. Um, obviously, you are chair of the Constitution Committee, so you're really interested in uh, the Constitution of the UK. Um, and as a Conservative, I assume you want to maintain it. Um, how did you sort of, where did your interest in that side of it all come from? Well, it, it's very, it, it's very visceral, this. Um, both my parents were born in Edinburgh. I always had cousins and uncles and aunts in Scotland. I went on, on my school holidays every year to Scotland. I was brought up to go to parties in a kilt. Um, I, oh, I, was, I was taught to dance. I still wear a kilt um, when I am um, taking part in Cayleys in Scotland. Um, have you ever worn a kilt in the House of Commons? I would dream of wearing a kilt. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because it would. Yeah. Day or something. It would, be, it would be. I would be accused of cultural misappropriation. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see the reaction on, on some benches well, if, you, if you did. Yeah, I, I, I should have. We've got one of the fast burns nights and Andrew's Day this year. Let's let's do it. Um, let's finish so off. My father served in the Scottish Battalion. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. So it's emotional to you in a way that perhaps the, the well, Brexit... Blood. Yeah, in a way that the Brexit debate wasn't why, for sort of... Why do you think people that identify as English are more, more like, as opposed to British, are more likely to vote for Leave? Why, why do you think that was one of the key drivers, people that felt... Well, well I, 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 English as opposed to British. Well, I would be careful about that, um, because, um, because of the media landscape in Scotland and the political leadership landscape in Scotland, it was very, very difficult to get any kind of Vote Leave campaign going in Scotland. So Vote Leave spent no money in Scotland. Sure. But, but I mean, English... I, I, look, just get this, we spent no money in Scotland. I mean, yeah. we decided it was it's a, 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 a relatively small proportion of the electorate. We could, we could make a huge amount of time and effort and money, and we would achieve very little because the media was so hostile to Leave in Scotland. And so it was, it was a barren... It was barren territory for us that we did not even bother to say much on. Yeah, let's finish with the features we ask uh, everyone. Um, first of all, the best thing and the worst thing, because there will be good things and there will be bad things about Brexit. Best thing. Oh. Worst thing. So let's start. Let's let's be. Let's end on a positive. So let's start with what will be the worst thing about Brexit. Oh, the, uh, easily the worst thing about Brexit is the sense of mystified betrayal we are leaving amongst so much of the rest of the leadership of Europe. Um, that they have, they find it very difficult to understand why David Cameron called a referendum and why the referendum was lost. They, they are very perplexed about it and it will take um, an awful lot of effort to repair that damage. I think it, it, it can be done quite quickly, but it is easily the worst thing about leaving the European Union. Um, who's to blame for that? Well, I think it's um, I think it's the fault of the treaties, personally. Um, the the proponents of European unification have always been less than honest about what they really mean, um, and that and you can you can find the Jean Monnet quotes where he says, "Well, we mustn't ever tell the, the European people what we're really doing." Um, um, because it was um, it was always a federalism by stealth, um, rather than it wasn't like the founding fathers of the American Constitution that made it absolutely clear what they were trying to create. It was quite the reverse. It was it was what Jean Monnet called functionalism. It was a fudge. 
Um, it wasn't a fudge, it was a downright deceit. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so the other side of the question, of course, is what's going to be the best thing about Brexit? I think by far the best thing. All, all the evidence shows is when a, a country is given its independence, it revitalizes it. How? Um, how um, what's well, this going to look like? Because suddenly people say, oh, we're responsible for our own destiny now, we can't blame anybody else. Um, ministers will no longer be able to turn around and say, oh, we have to do this because of the European Union. They will be accountable and the, our democracy will be stronger as a consequence and policy will be better as a consequence. Is there a wider revitalisation? You know, that's, I get all that, you know, as a politics journalist, you know, democracy is lovely and all that sort of stuff, but is there a more tangible... You don't sound very convinced. Well, just, is there a more I tangible... I you should try and sound more enthusiastically. <laughs> I, I, absolutely, I will advocate for, for democracy, but is there a more tangible uh, vision of this revitalisation um, that you can sort of spell out? Perhaps? Yes, I think we're going to be spending more on technological development, we're going to be um, um, have a more adventurous tax policy to drive innovation and growth, uh, we're going to be um, doing, have a far more engaged relationship with countries outside the European Union, particularly on matters of trade. Um, you, you ask um, the former trade minister of New Zealand, uh, Lockwood Smith, who was the ambassador here for many years afterwards, um, whether he ever bothered to come to London when he was in New Zealand's trade minister. Mm. No, he didn't. He went straight to Brussels. Uh, they will be beating a path to our door now. I've just had a meeting this morning with the um, US ambassador. Mm. Um, I couldn't have been given a stronger indication of the United States administration's enthusiasm about doing a free trade deal with the United Kingdom. I know the intelligentsia in this country scorns this as some kind of um, falsehood that, they, that you know, we're going to get screwed by the Americans. Um, well, we have a trade surplus with the Americans at the moment. We, they are our biggest existing export market. We export far more services to the United States than we do to the European Union. Um, they are a very important trading partner. It would be to their advantage to do a trade, a trade deal with the United Kingdom. Um, and, and it would be ours too, so it will probably happen. It will probably happen quite quickly. Um, this is very exciting stuff. And in fact, um, uh, to engage the United States much more positively in European affairs um, with our stronger bilateral and independent bilateral relationship, it will be very good for Europe because the great danger that we are constantly confronted with is American isolationism. And we can't afford that because our security depends upon the United States across the whole of the whole of Europe. I mean, I like the idea of more tech and more robots and all that. The the New Zealand trade deal I'm always slightly worried about, given that you know we've just discussed the size of London. New Zealand's slightly even smaller than London. No, I'm not. But I'm, America, I'm, I'm all America says exciting. Actually, that says what, okay. what New Zealand, Australia, Japan, Chile, um, uh, and many of the other countries in the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership now minus the United States, one of our earliest discussions will be, is already, about how the United Kingdom can be, become involved in that trade partnership. That's a, already a bigger market than the European Union. Well, yeah, that's it. Um, and there is very strong enthusiasm for us to be engaged with that. And of course, we're having the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Yes, that's uh, That is a market of 2.3 billion people, rather bigger than the European Union. And bear in mind that point that 90% of the growth of the of the world over the next 20 years, according to the European Commission, is going to be outside the European Union. We're going to be engaging in these faster growing markets than by being trapped in the high regulation, low growth, high unemployment, sclerotic 
uh, European economic model that is saddled with a failing euro. Um, I like all the, talk, the talk of Japan, of course, that will feed into the, uh, the more money for science and tech because they've got loads of robots, haven't they? They've got a robot hotel in Japan, my children tell me. So it's <laughs> so terribly excited. exciting. Um, let's finish off with the final feature, which is, and I always get this title wrong, do you know the title of this feature, Alan? You're Ooh, a keen listener. Um, it's, what would we suggest? No, it's something about, about in, the, in the unlikely in event. In the unlikely event, event that this... Podcast is not enlightened you sufficiently. Something like that. The bottom line is a recommendation. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. For people who want to understand Brexit, and there are lots of people who want to understand Brexit, and it is complicated and it is off-putting to a lot of people, which is why we make a podcast to try and make it more accessible, what would you recommend people go to next, whether that's a, you know, a book, a piece of art, I don't know, whatever? Where would you recommend people look? Well, I've thought about this question. It's quite difficult, isn't it? Um, I think the best thing you could do is study European history because nothing much has changed. Uh, and um, uh, any, um, I, I hope that we continue to resolve things um, without recourse to conflict. Um, but um, uh, that is what, that is what um, uh, we must do to understand why Brexit is happening. We must understand that um, um, a great deal of the national agendas driving the European Union are actually driven by the history of those nations. And ours is no exception. Alan, I have to ask you this one as well. Well, well I'm not allowed to say our impartial development no. government report. No, uh, you cannot allowed, that's banned. You're not allowed to recommend your own stuff anymore. Uh, <laughs> Um, and this is probably not popular on, on Twitter or whatever, but there was an article last week by uh, Danny Finkelstein in the Times, and it's behind a paywall. But he basically is saying a lot of the things that Bernard has, has said, that the European Union's position is inherently political, even though they tried to sell it as a technocratic position, and the people are going to start pushing back against that potentially. Okay. That's been the Times last week. But I mean, the other thing, of course, the European Union isn't going to stay like it is. Um, I expect... And I hope that our leaving the European Union will be a catalyst to positive change within the European Union. The euro will eventually break up. Um, it, will, it will crumble at the edges at the very least. There will be another eurozone crisis because the debt, the, the debt is accumulating in the debt of nations. There are the trade imbalances between Germany and the exporting countries and the importing countries is, is, is accumulating. And there's no mechanism in the European Union to correct that except some very untransparent banking transfers which are not sustainable. This is going to go wrong. A dark prophecy from Bernard Jenkins to end there. I wasn't sure about his throwaway reference to conflict either. So much for a uh, sunny post-Brexit future, eh? It'll all be fine, though, apparently, because robots and Japan and history. Um, Bernard was fun and generous with his time, so I am grateful for to him. But my goodness, there were some big and contentious claims in there. We'll get a US trade deal very quickly. There'll be another Eurozone crisis. We've seen the high point of Scottish nationalism. And Theresa May is doing a really good job. Take your pick, really. There was all sorts in there. Uh, and Alan was good too, wasn't he? I should point out that you'll find a link to the article he was referring to on my website, which is james-miller.com, where I archive all the recommendations from the podcasts so far. 
You can also get in touch with me there or you can get me on UK in a changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com or you can get me on Twitter. I am at political yeti. UK and Changing Europe are at UK and EU on Twitter, and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk. If you want to get in touch with Alan, you can get him through there, I suppose. The music this week was again Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. I'm still waiting for a listener to send me in some alternative music or even just a jingle. And I have been James Miller. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and Changing Europe supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back in two weeks' time for another very special episode featuring a comedian and the nation's foremost sophologist. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>